This is Church on the Rock, where Jesus is our message and people are our heart. Tune in to hear a teaching that we pray inspires and encourages your life with Christ. And all through scripture, you see this principle of dare to believe and pray God-sized prayers. In Joshua chapter 10, the armies of Israel are chasing the Amorite kings through the valley of Gibeah. Joshua realizes that time is running out. The sun is setting, and he knows if I allow these armies to continue, we'll lose them in the night, and they'll come back stronger. So Joshua, standing there in his power spot, he looks up to heaven, dares to believe, and prays a God-sized prayer. And he says, Father in heaven, I need more time. I need you to stop the sun in the sky. Blows my mind that a mere man would have the audacity to tell almighty God to stop the sun in the sky. But God the Father loves God-sized prayers. He believes in them. And I believe what happened in heaven is God the Father sitting on the throne of grace, opened the ethereal windows of heaven, stuck a tiny finger out, and stopped the orbit in the sky, giving Joshua extra hours in the day. Scientists have actually come up with a time that we had a 25-hour day and not a 24-hour day, and they pinpoint it to about the same time that Joshua was fighting the battle in the valley of Gibeah. That should make you want to shout with a great shout. That's a God-sized prayer. One of my favorite God-sized prayers is in 2 Kings chapter 6. The Ammonite kings, or the King of Aram, excuse me, is coming against the children of Israel. He's trying to block them in. Problem was, every time he went to do a battle, Israel was already waiting on him. So he would go the other way, and Israel was waiting there. And he was getting frustrated. And he calls all of his generals into his bedroom, and he says, which one of you are a traitor? And they say, not a single one of us, great, great king. All of us are faithful men. Well, then what's the problem? And they answer, the problem is, there's a prophet in Israel named Elisha. And the God of Israel tells him what you speak about in the midnight hour in your bedroom. I could preach a whole series of messages that there's still a God alive and well, and he still hears what you whisper in the midnight hour in your bedroom. He is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's still alive and he's still well. And he whispers in the evening and he hears what you say. So the Ammonite king, he gets upset and he says, go and bring him to me. And they send a garrison of soldiers to surround the house of Elisha. That morning, his young sidekick, his associate, his young music pastor, (laughs) he goes outside and he sees a massive army around him and he panics. And he runs in and he says, oh, master. We're in trouble. And Elisha walks outside. And he sees those that are there. And he prays a God-sized prayer. 2 Kings 6, verse 17. O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes. I love that. The Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, he saw the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. I have adopted this prayer, this God-sized prayer, for the millennium generation. They're 77.5 million strong. They're the largest people group in America right now, age 18 to 33. 
The reason that we are dealing with all of the stuff in our culture, why we're so divided, why we are a generation that is so easily offended. Paul told Timothy, preach the word, rebuke and exhort, for a time is coming when people will no longer endure sound doctrine. That means sound teaching. But they will heap to themselves teachers according to their appetites. They'll be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, bold, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, and easily offended. Have I just described the millennium generation? And I've prayed and prayed and prayed for my sons and daughter that are on the university campuses, and my constant prayer is, Lord, open their eyes that they would see. How many want to pray that prayer with me? Open their eyes that they would see. Peter, walking by the gate called Beautiful, prays a God-sized prayer. There's a crippled man laying there, and he looks over and says, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto thee. Arise and walk in the name of Jesus the Christ. So glad he said the Christ, because the word Christ means the Christos. It means the anointed one with the anointing. So he said, Arise in the name of Jesus, who, by the way, is the anointed one with the anointing. And the Bible says he jumped up and went running and leaping and praising God. Church on the Rock, the common denominator in all of these heroes of the faith, they dared to ask God to do the unthinkable. They dared to ask God and believe for the impossible. And if Church of the Rock is going to reach your highest potential, and if you are going to fulfill your God-given dream and vision and call, then you're going to have to come to the understanding of the power of God-sized prayers. You have to develop the same passion for God-sized prayers of those that are heroes of faith. Let me ask you an eternal question. You say, okay, Pastor Randy, what's an eternal question? An eternal question, the answer has a bearing on all of your tomorrows. Here's the question. When's the last time you asked God to do something impossible or out of the ordinary In your life, in your marriage, in your church, in your nation, when is the last time you asked God to do something impossible or out of the ordinary? I believe one reason we don't see God do great things in the American church is because people ask for small things. Most people will pray over their food or they pray for protection or they pray for, a, for wisdom. That's all good, but I believe it's limiting the limitless Savior. There should be something that you are praying for and asking God that it is impossible, that's so far out, something that you cannot achieve on your own. Are you asking God for a God-sized prayer? The heroes of the faith listed in Hebrews 11, they dared to ask, and then they had the faith to believe. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith or the hall of heroes or the Westminster Abbey of Scripture. Listed are men and women, not so much for their amazing abilities, but for their incredible faith. Faith that made a difference. Listed are Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Jacob and Sarah and Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David, and the list goes on and on and on and on. These people, they dared to believe. Listen, your dream may seem impossible. 
You may feel like you don't have the connections or the funding, but God this morning prophetically is asking you, dare to ask me to bring it to pass. Dare to ask me to connect you with the right people. Dare to ask me to flood you with my anointing and my giftings. Oh, you're making me wish I had tonight because the anointing is an amazing thing. The word anoint simply means to rub off or cover up. The anointing is nothing more than the personality of the Holy Spirit that you receive at salvation. That when it's time for ministry, he comes from within you and rests upon you. Up on, up on. And sometimes he comes on you to the point that your knees buckle. And the presence of the Lord gets so heavy. Too many times we pray for small things. If you're anything like me, you might have prayed this prayer. God, my sons and daughter, they're wonderful. They really love you, but they're knuckleheads, Lord. They're making poor choices. Is there anyone else by an upraised hand that has prayed that prayer? You've got adult kids, and you say, Lord, they're wonderful. They're awesome. Are you sitting next to someone that's a knucklehead? The other day, you know, I get a call from my son, Quentin. Remember, he's a sophomore at the University of Arkansas. He calls me on a, on a, uh, on a Friday night, and he goes, hey, Pop. I said, hey, what? We got a problem. I said, oh, we got a problem? Yeah, we got a problem. I said, okay, Q, what's the problem? He goes, well, Dad, the problem is I lost the keys to my truck. I go, no, baby, we don't have a problem. You got a problem. He goes, no, no, Dad, I'm telling you, we got a problem. I said, listen, Q, you don't have a problem. Uh, I didn't lose the keys, you know, and so you better figure something out. He goes, no, Dad, you don't understand. I parked my truck in the wrong parking lot here at school, and if I don't get it out of that parking lot by 12 o'clock Saturday, they're going to tow the truck. I said, listen, dude, you're 21 years old. I didn't park the truck there. You got a problem, man. You better go get a couple more hours at your little restaurant that you wait tables at. You better figure something out. He goes, Dad, you don't understand. I said, son, no, you don't understand. And we're going back and forth. He goes, Dad, we got a problem. I said, Quentin, we don't have a problem. He said, yes, we do, Dad. I said, why do we have a problem? He said, they told me that they will tow the truck, and it'll cost me $500 to get it out of the impound. And if I don't pay it, it's going on my school bill. We now have a problem. I said, why didn't you tell me that? He said, I've been trying to tell you we got a problem. But he said, don't worry. I talked to mom. I said, really? And she said, yes, that uh, you don't have any place to preach on Sunday. You're going to Oklahoma so that you can get up really early in the morning and you can drive me the extra set of keys to Fayetteville. It'll only add five to six hours to your drive. I look at my wife, and she is cracking up. I said, oh, you talk to mom. Thanks, babe. So I'm going down I-44 in Springfield, Missouri, heading west towards Joplin to take the freeway on to Fayetteville. And it's raining, and it's sleet, you know, sleeting, and I'm upset because, you know, i got to drive so much. And I'm complaining to God, and I said, Lord, can you help my son make better choices? 
And the Holy Spirit whispered. And he said, Randy, yes, Lord. Mijo, see, because the Holy Spirit's Puerto Rican. (laughs) (laughs) Is that all you want? I said, Lord, is that all you want me to do is help him make good choices? I said, well, no, Lord. Well, what do you really want? And suddenly the prayer became, God, I'm asking you not only to help him make good choices, but, Lord, I want him to touch people all over the world. I want him to shake the gates of hell. I want him to be more of a threat to the devil than the devil is a threat to him. I want him to fulfill Acts the second chapter that says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. I want him to call down the fire of God. I want him to have a godly wife. I want him to be a Bible-believing, overcoming child of God. I want him to be filled with the Holy Spirit, a tongue-talking believer. And the Holy Spirit, let me go for a while. And then he whispers, then pray that way. Then pray that way. See, an ordinary prayer is, God, can you help my son make better choices? An ordinary prayer is, God, just help me to make it by this month. Lord, if you can just help me pay the rent this month, that would be great. Listen, there's nothing wrong with praying that way and that type of praying, especially if it's heartfelt. But a God-sized prayer for those of us who truly believe in the resurrection is, God, I'm asking you to increase me in such a way that as I give, as I'm obedient, as I give my tithe and I give my offering, that, Lord, you would increase me in such a way that I can not only pay off my house, but I could also pay off my mother's house, that I could also give into missions, that I can give to the church that we might expand and that we might grow for the power of God to take our generation. If you believe what I'm preaching, somebody clap your hands and praise him. God is asking for you to pray God-sized prayers. The power of God is amazing. Dare to believe and pray God-sized prayers. Listen, I'm not suggesting that you can make a wish list and pray for every whim. But I am saying and encouraging you to ask God for what he has already promised. If you're dealing with fear in your life, then why don't you begin to pray, Dad, you said prayers. Some of the greatest prayers I've prayed in 28 years of ministry always start out, Dad, you said. Dad, you said in Isaiah 41 and 10, fear not for you are with me. Be not dismayed, for you are my God. Dad, you said you will strengthen me and you will help me and you will uphold me with your righteous hand, Dad, you said. If you're struggling in your marriage, in the communication, or maybe you pray this way. Dad, you said in Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife found a good thing. And Lord, I know I found a good thing, but it's difficult right now, so I'm praying for godly favor, unmerited grace. I'm asking you to have the ABCs of faith. The ABCs of faith are agree with God's word, believe God's word, and confess God's word. Does anybody else agree with God's word? 
Does anybody else agree with the Lord is my light and my salvation? Whom shall I fear? Well, you're not in the building yet. The Lord is my shepherd. Whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked enemies and my foes come upon me to eat my flesh, they will stumble and fall. The host shall rise against me. My heart shall not fear. The war shall rise against me in this. Will I be confident that one thing that I desire of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple for in a time of trouble, he shall hide me. He shall save Set me up upon a rock. Does anybody else agree with that word? Does anybody else believe that word? Then I'm going to ask you on a daily basis to confess that word. There are dreams and desires that God has put in your heart that didn't just randomly show up. The creator of the universe has put them there. Psalm 139, 13, for you form my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. You see, there are dreams and desires that God put in your heart that just don't randomly show up. They're part of your divine destiny. You have heavenly DNA. You're cut from the same cloth of Jeremiah and Enoch and Job. You got the same power inside of you that invaded the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and raised to life again the three-day dead body of the Lamb of God. That's who you are in Christ. Don't let the devil tell you you're not. That's who you are. You see, God puts those impossible dreams in your heart on purpose. Why, to frustrate me, Pastor? No, so that you realize without faith it's impossible to accomplish it. And you could have two choices, two choices. When that thing happens, you could throw your hands in the air and get frustrated and get negative and say, well, I guess, Lord, it's not going to happen. I guess, Lord, it's not going to fulfill the promise. I guess, Lord, the best days of Church on the Rock have come and gone. This is it, God. I guess I'll never see my family put together. I guess I'll never see my family healed. I guess I'll never get cancer out of my body. I guess I'll never do that. You have that choice. Did you know that you have the possibility within you to talk yourself right out of a miracle? The power of life and death is in the tongue. And you have the power to seed faith or you have the power to talk yourself out of a miracle. See, this is what happened with the children of Israel. They got to the promised land and they allowed isolation. They allowed themselves to get weary. If I had another night with you, I would teach you the difference between being physically tired and spiritually weary. You see, physically tired is the result of hard work. So you can go off and go to California or you go to the shore, you go to the beach and you relax and you rejuvenate. But when you're weary, honey, when you're weary, the moment you deal with this, here comes that. And the moment you deal with that, here comes this. And the moment you deal with this, here comes that. And suddenly, it just seems like there's a massive onslaught, and the garage door won't open, and the refrigerator goes out, and the car breaks down, and you look at each other, and you say, what in the world is going on? And you can actually think that it all just happens, or you can realize that our life is being attacked by the supernatural forces that are all around us, and the devil is trying to isolate you in your marriage. 
In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul says, don't grow weary in doing what is right, because if you, you will faint not. If you, if you keep going, you will faint not. If you keep walking, you'll faint not. In other words, when he says don't grow weary, that means we have a choice. And the moment that you allow the negative thoughts into your mind, the devil has you. Listen, the devil can't read your thoughts, but he has the ability to create a train of thought that so fits your way of thinking that you suppose it comes from your own line of reasoning. And suddenly these negative thoughts come and they'll bombard you. And the moment you grab that thought, Satan says, I got him. My wife doesn't love me anymore. My husband doesn't care. I'll never lose weight. And the moment you bite on that, suddenly there comes an onslaught. And he's hoping to push you to isolation. Why isolation, pastor? Isolation is one of the devil's main tools. While speaking in Friona, Texas, All over that area, it's just feedlots, and that's all it is, you know. And they got thousands and thousands and thousands of head of cattle. And a rancher said that as he pulled into his, his ranch, if he sees all the cows around the water, he's doing good. But if he sees one off in the distance, he knows that there's a problem, and they're only out there for one or two reasons. They're either out there, number one, to give birth, or number two, they're diseased, and they're going to die. That's why they're being isolated. And the Holy Spirit will use the most practical things to teach you the most prophetic truth. And the Holy Spirit whispered, isolation was created by the Holy Spirit, and the devil has perverted it. You see, the Bible says Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested or to be brought in under fire to get ready for Calvary. You know you're being isolated by the Holy Spirit to give birth to a fresh anointing. If the whole time you're being isolated, there's a great hope. There's a feeling of great birth. God's about to do something new. I'm so excited. Jesus in the wilderness never said, Satan, I bind you. What did he say? It is. It is. See, somebody on Christian television came up with the fallacy that we have the power to bind the devil. If we have the power to bind the devil, I want to talk to the idiot that keeps letting him out every day. (laughs) Duh. You can bind his works. You can rebuke him. But man has a free will. Jesus never said, Satan, I bind you. He said, it is written. There was a fresh anointing. There was a fresh word. There was a fresh seed coming through his life. He was about to birth a fresh anointing that was going to carry him through Calvary. If you're being isolated right now and you feel that fresh word, you know you're about to birth a fresh anointing. That's what I'm sensing in this church right now. However, if in your isolation, you're feeling weariness and tired and it's always negative and I'm never going to make it and this is not going to happen and boy, it seems like I can't ever get ahead. That's how you know the devil is trying to take you out. He's trying to take you out. And the children of Israel got to the promised land. They're about to go in, and they are so weary that they focused on their enemy, and they turned negative, and they brought 2.5 million people out of a victory, and suddenly now roughly the size of the state of Rhode Island goes on a death march for the next 40 years. I don't know about you, 
but I'm sick and tired of a death march. I don't want to see my kids have to take another lap. Joshua and Caleb focus on the size of their God. It's not the size of the problem in your life that's important. Rather, it's our perception of those problems and how big or small you make them in your mind. And it's a well-known fact that what you focus on, you will magnify. And if you're constantly focusing on the problems or what you don't have or how it'll never work out or how you're doing this or doing that, it's not going to work, then you'll never, ever get victory. Stop saying, I'll never get out of debt. I'll never overcome this sickness. I'll never see my family restored. You're magnifying the wrong thing. King David said, oh, magnify the Lord with me. He was saying, if you want to magnify something, then learn instead to make your God bigger. It's in these times I've learned to lift my hands and lift my voice and say, my God, you're greater than every obstacle. You are the alpha and the omega. You're still the beginning and the end. My God, you are the everlasting father. You are the hope of glory. You are my provider. God, I'm asking you to open doors that no man can open and no man can shut. Lord, I'm asking you to fulfill your word. Dare to believe and pray God-sized prayers. Do you know what would happen this fall and in 2018 if this church would take God at his word and dare to believe and pray God-sized prayers? Do you know the miracles that would begin to birth in this place? The call of God that's on this church. Years ago, a young mother moved her family from Puerto Rico to New York in search of a better life back in the 1960s. They were very, very poor, living in a rough neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen. True story. And there were all kinds of gangs and drugs and violence around. Her son, Victor, was only 12 years old when they moved into the neighborhood, and the gang recruited him. Everyone he knew was in the gang. By the time he was 14, he was hooked on heroin. He'd already been arrested for mugging and robbing. She didn't know what to do. His mother was heartbroken. She couldn't speak much English, but she knew how to pray. And every day, seven days a week, once a day but twice on Sunday, she would go to a little storefront church in the projects And she would kneel there and pray God-sized prayers. And it wasn't enough for her to pray, Lord, get him off of drugs, get him out of the gangs. No, she would begin to pray, Lord, I want you to make him a pastor. Lord, I want you to put the healing touch of God in his life. Lord, I want you to put your word alive and well in his body. While he was still doing drugs, Victor would come home at 3 a.m. in the morning as high as a kite to find his little mom kneeling in the kitchen. She would get up and grab him by the lapels and say, Mijo, God is making you a pastor. God is calling you out. He's got a higher calling in your life. She never magnified the negative. She never asked him, are you high? She never said, are you drunk? She just said, God is calling you to a greater life. God is calling you out of the dregs of hell, and he's going to put the healing power of God in your heart. Victor would laugh, and he would just walk into the room. She said, the more I prayed, the worst he got. 
Is there anybody here that knows what it is to pray and have it get worse? Come on. See, I want you to raise your hand high because the devil wants to isolate you to think you're the only one that goes through things. But look around. You're not alone. The Bible says that we are not alone. And she said, the more I prayed, the worse it got. And she coined a phrase. But every time I saw him, I did not allow what I see to affect what I know. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. I want you to say with me, I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. Come on, Church on the Rock, say it again. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. She got a call from the principal. She walked into the school, and the teachers were all gathered there because they're afraid of Victor. And they looked at her, and the principal said, we've all voted. Your son is no longer welcome in our school. We believe he's going to the state penitentiary. We believe he's going to end up in the electric chair. She got up and smiled, shook every one of their hand, thanked them graciously. And as she walked out of that office and headed down that long hallway in that school, she said under her breath, I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. I know I'm a child of God. I know who I am in Christ. My God says, train up a child in the way he shall go. And when he is old, he shall not depart from it. My friend, she said, I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. One day, everyone say one day. How many remember your one day? (laughs) One day, (laughs) Victor came around the corner, bebopping with all his buddies, had no idea that while his mother was praying, the Lord was speaking to a skinny preacher named David Wilkerson. And the Lord had David Wilkerson come to New York City and start preaching on a barren street corner. You see, there's a man that dared to believe and pray God-sized prayers. You might be the only one out there that believes and dares to believe, but be obedient. And one day, Victor came around the corner and he bumped right into David Wilkerson. And David Wilkerson, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, looked right at him and said, young man, the Lord of heaven sent me to tell you that if you were the only one alive on this planet, he still would have sent his only begotten son to die on the cross and rise again on the third day just for you. He loves you and he cares for you. Victor heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He fell right there in the gutter and the Lord delivered him of alcohol. The Lord delivered him of drugs. The Lord got him out of the gang. But let me tell you the rest of the story. Victor Torres is pastoring one of the greatest churches in America. It's called New Life Outreach in Richmond, Virginia. And he goes all over America laying hands on alcoholics and drug addicts. He goes all over America with the healing touch of God in his hand. His church is blowing out the doors with miracles and healings. When I hear that he's preaching, I often think, I wonder where Victor would be if his mother didn't have the guts to pray God-sized prayers. Yeah. Maybe David Wilkerson would have never come to New York. Maybe we wouldn't have Teen Challenge International. 
But his mother said in a conference that I was speaking at, she's since gone to be with the Lord. In her broken English, she said, when it looked impossible, and when all the odds were against her, and every voice told his mother, you're wasting your time, your son is far too gone, he'll never amount to anything. She said, I dug my heels into the promises of God. I stood on the infallible word of heaven, and I told myself, I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. I will not allow what I see to affect what I know. It all depends on, do you really know what you believe? You see, that's why God has laid it on pastor's heart to have classes where you learn what you believe. I just read an article that states that the average American believes that if they come one or two times to church in the month, then they're faithful. But that's not going to cut it, gang, in the age of the supernatural. This is the day and age of the supernatural. You will either experience a move of the power of God or you'll experience a move of the powers of hell, but you must, you will experience the supernatural. And the key is when the devil comes against you with a political mindset or a biblical, non-biblical worldview, do you have a biblical worldview to fight the devil? A biblical worldview all starts with, I believe the Bible is the inherent word of God. I believe everything in it is true. And so every decision I make, whether it's in my raising my kids or treating my wife and husband or whatever it is, I first filter it through God's word. Now I have a parameter to walk in. And the question is, do you have a biblical worldview? Dare to believe and pray a God-sized prayer. You've got to be around people that have a biblical worldview. If not, you'll let the devil isolate you, and he'll get you to think you're the only one that thinks that way. And pretty soon, he gets you believing, I don't need church. I don't need those things. I don't need to tithe. I don't have to do those things. And the moment he gets you thinking that way, he says, I got you. I got you. I got you. You have to know what you believe. And every morning, it takes all of 15 seconds to go over what you believe in your mind as you're walking into the shower. They used to tell me, you got to talk to yourself right. You got to talk to yourself right. And so let me share with you what I believe. Because I have no doubt as I close this, and I want our music pastor to come. I have no doubt that there are many of you who believe the same way I do. But the devil in this culture is trying to create a train of thought and isolate you to the point that you think it's not important to come to church. It's not important to tithe. I want you to say softly to yourself, dare to believe and pray God-sized prayers. Not going to allow what I see to affect what I know. Here's what I believe. And the moment you hear something you believe, and believe me, I'm not saying this to create a response or to, but if you hear something you believe, feel free to jump up and shout amen. 
See, amen simply means so be it. Or I agree like you do. And I'm doing this just so you know that you're not isolated and the devil, oh, wow. He's trying to create a train of thought. And we're living in a culture that thinks I'm saved if I can just go to church a couple times. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 2 that he writes to the angel of the church at Ephesus, the angelos, the angel. You have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolosians, which I also hate. Oh, you make me wish I had time. Can I, can I take just a little bit of time? A little bit. What is the doctrine of the Nicolosians? Well, Nicholas was actually one of the Magnificent Seven. Brought in to be a deacon along with Stephen. Saved by the Apostle Paul on one of his trips through Greece. But many theologians believe that Nicholas, prior to becoming a Christian, was also involved in Greek teachings and the Greek culture. And and he didn't quite separate himself from all the Greek philosophers. And so he brought a little bit of the Greek thinking into his Christian walk. And he started preaching a doctrine of easy believism. The doctrine he was preaching is basically this. God really doesn't care how you live your life as long as you throw a token into the offering. It's called antinomianism. As long as you show up a little bit, God doesn't care how you live or how you dress. And he was teaching open relationships. And remember, the Greeks were involved in all types of sexual perversion. And Nicholas wasn't preaching against it at all. He was, he was just saying, God, God, really, it's okay. Grace, 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 grace. Listen, I believe in grace, but I also believe you can trample grace. God the Father in Revelation 2 says, I hate that doctrine of easy believism, of saying, let somebody else do it. Let somebody else be committed. I've got too many things. And do you know that what was happening is Nicholas was saying, preaching family and saying, you know, you should spend more time with family. In America today, I just left the hotel this morning, and I was shocked to see how many kids were there on a Sunday with hockey teams and baseball. And You say, well, what? listen, it's family time. I had three sons, all a lot bigger and better looking and better athletic than I am. And they all played, wanted to play AAU basketball and football. And, and I said, okay, mijo, you can, but you'll be on church on Sunday and you'll be in church on Wednesday night. And oh, the flack that I got. But what would have happened if I would have told my sons, it's okay, you only miss a couple Sundays. You only, and then they get married And there's no hunger for the house of the Lord. The Bible says that in the last days, there'll be a waxing cold of the very elect to where the people no longer even think about or have a love for God. And God says, I hate that doctrine. Easy believism. And Nicholas was preaching this, and so he split the church. And it's because a lot of the people really didn't know what they believed. 
Do you know what you believe? Do you have enough faith to pray God-sized prayers and then believe that God is going to fulfill it? Is there anybody here that believes this building's too small? Well, you didn't hear me. Is there anybody who believes that this building is too small? Is there anybody who believes that God put you here to build a warehouse that will house an end-time harvest that is worldwide in dimension? Is there anybody here that dares to believe that God wants to send a revival to church on the rock that will shake the gates of hell and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Let me tell you what I believe. And the moment you hear something you believe, I want you to shout, amen. I want you to shout, praise God. Don't let the devil steal your joy. I believe in God's written word. I believe in God's promises. I believe what God says is true. I believe in God, the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who is the Lord and Savior, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. I believe he descended into the gates of hell, and on the third day he rose again, and he's now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. I believe in all 66 books of the Bible. I believe the time is coming when Jesus Christ will come again. That is when he will judge the living and the dead whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. I believe in the holy Christian church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the millennial reign. I believe in the rapture of the church. I believe that in my lifetime I will hear the trumpet sound of God and the dead in Christ shall rise and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the air with King Jesus. If you believe like I do, then somebody clap your hands and praise him. Somebody shout to God. I believe. I believe. Oh, you didn't hear me. If you believe, I want you to shout, I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe. If you truly believe, then God is calling you to a new dimension of commitment and a prayer life that is not like anything you've ever seen. If you truly believe, then at the count of three, I'm going to ask you to step out of these aisles and run to the altars of grace. If you really believe, I'm going to ask you to turn to the person next to you at the count of three and say, if you want to go forward and pray God-sized prayers, if you want to believe God for greater miracles, for greater healings, then I'll go with you so you don't have to go alone. You say, well, why in the world would I do that? Listen, I've just met your pastors, Brian and Carmen. But our spirit has bore witness. And I believe, they believe just like I do, that once you give your life to Christ in this church, you're never alone again. You didn't hear me. You're never alone again. So at the count of three, if you're ready, if you believe that this is your destiny and your purpose, if you believe that God has miracles waiting, if you believe that God doesn't want you to live like the Nicolosians, if you, oh, get ready. If you believe that the prophet of God is about to, Father, at the count of three, I want you to turn to the person next to you and just come. If we got to push the chairs back, push them back. One, don't miss them. Two, three, right now, just come. Just come. Just come. Sing for me, Pastor. Push the chairs back. Get them out of the way. I want you to come and lift your hands and begin to cry out to God. You lift your voice. 
We hope this message connected with you. To get more information about Church on the Rock, check out our website at www.cotrag.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Have a blessed day.